This is the Art of Dental Finance and Management podcast brought to you by Art Wiederman, CPA with Ide Bailey. Whether it's taxes and investing or planning wisely, Art is the expert to make your dental practice profitable. At Ide Bailey, what inspires you inspires us. We provide a suite of accounting and advisory services dedicated to the total care of your practice. Visit our website to access our tools and resources tailored for dentists, idebailey.com slash dentist. That's E-I-D-E-B-A-I-L-L-Y dot com slash dentist. This podcast is distributed with the understanding that Art Wiederman, CPA, and Ide Bailey, LLP are not rendering legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Listeners should consult with their business advisors before acting on any of the information or opinions shared. If you have questions and or feedback, make sure to email Art over at awiederman at idebailey.com. That's A-W-I-E-D-E-R-M-A-N at E-I-D-E-B-A-I-L-L-Y dot com. You can also give Art a call at 657-279-3243. Without further delay, here's your host, Dental CPA Art Wiederman. And hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Dental Finance and Management podcast with Art Wiederman, CPA. Welcome to the podcast. My name is Art Wiederman. If you have not listened to my podcast before, welcome for for you first-timers. I am a dental division director at the wonderful CPA firm of Ide Bailey. That's uh, like Ides of March and Beetle Bailey is what I say, but uh, uh, we've been part of uh, Ide Bailey now for about six months, and it is just a wonderful, wonderful place, and I'm making all kinds of new friends and have all kinds of new resources for uh, our clients. And you are going to meet uh, one of our senior managers in our forensic uh, division today, Brandon Waldron. And our topic today is very timely. Uh, We're in the middle of a pandemic. People are suffering. People are suffering financially, emotionally. um, And it'll be interesting to get Brandon's take on this as far as um, you know, what are the risks in a dental office for fraud and embezzlement? Uh, the statistics show from what I've read, and I'm sure Brandon will chime in on this, somewhere between one in four and one in five healthcare professionals get embezzled somewhere during their uh, professional careers. And uh, we're going to talk about, um, number one is, you know, what are the different things that could happen uh, you know, to get embezzled? Uh, how do you prevent it? What happens if you find an embezzlement? Uh, I don't think you want to just go run to the embezzler and say, oh, Joe, hey, I caught you. Good luck. Uh, You better call your lawyer. That's probably not what Brandon's going to talk about. So we'll talk about all those things, and we'll get to Brandon in a moment. Uh, I do want to share some information with you. Please, please, as I tell you every week, go on to our wonderful partner, Decisions in Dentistry magazine. Um, uh, you know, second to none clinical content articles, great articles that have gotten um, lots of people through uh, this challenging COVID-19 pandemic, which we're now entering our 10th month on. It's hard to believe we're so far into this. Uh, go to www.decisionsanddentistry.com. If you are looking for a complimentary consultation from me or a member of our Academy of Dental CPAs, um, please go ahead and check the box and we'll get a hold of you. Uh, and if you're not working with a dental specific CPA, you should be. Uh, we at Ide Bailey represent over 800 dentists and our National Academy represents uh, 
over 10,000 24 CPA firms across the United States that represent over 10,000 dentists. So we're recording here. We've been date stamping these. Um, didn't have to do that till there was a pandemic, but we're doing that now. We're recording in the middle of January, and I suspect that this podcast will come out in the middle, sometime end of January, beginning of February. So uh, again, just a couple things to remind you guys. The second round of PPP loans are out. Um, you can apply up through March 31st. Uh, www.treasury.gov has got all the information. Go to your local bank. Talk to them about uh, if you applied for them for the first round and you had a more than 25% reduction in your revenues in any quarter in 2020 compared to 2019. Uh, it's additional free money for you. And um, uh, the podcast that I recorded that came out on January the 13th has all the details about that. Also, remember that you have to, if you got an HHS provider relief fund grant, either uh, phase one, two, or three, you have to report to the Department of Health and Human Services on or before February the 15th. Uh, the portal um, has been open, uh, has been open for a couple weeks now. Uh, it was supposed to open on January 15th, which uh, we presume that it, uh, that it will. And uh, you have to report all your information there. And you can also file for forgiveness if your loan's less than $150,000. Use the simplified form. But go back and listen to my podcast of January 13th. A lot of good information. So we'll keep you updated on all this. Last thing before I get to Brandon, as I want to tell you, is that we are doing, uh, and I'm really excited and really proud of this, we're doing a wonderful series, a year-long series called The Business of Dentistry for Six Local Dental Societies in Southern California. Um, if you go to our website, www.idebailey, that's E-I-D-E-B-A-I-L-L-Y.com, uh, forward slash dental, D-E-N-T-A-L, series, like World Series, S-E-R-I-E-S, one word, you'll be able to register for our webinars. Uh, the next one we're going to have is the second Second Wednesday of February, and that's going to be with Christy Bolts talking about dental marketing. And I've had Christy fly to California. She lives in Ohio. Um, she's actually married to one of our ADCPA members in Ohio, Jim Bolts, who's a dear friend of mine. Christy is amazing and probably one of the best lecturers I have ever heard. And she's going to talk about dental marketing. All right. So let's get to our topic today, which is dental fraud and embezzlement. I have personally uh, had probably four or five clients that I know of that have told me that have been embezzled. Um, sadly, one of them was a family member who embezzled. Um, I've been involved to a limited extent. I would certainly not call myself a forensic accountant. But folks, um, internal controls and making sure that you're watching your store and not handing the trust over to the employee that you have trusted for 30 years is something that you need to hear and you need to know about. So my guest today, as I mentioned, is Brandon Waldron, who is a senior manager in the Fraud and Forensic Advisory Services Office of Ide Bailey. He is out of San Ramon, California. For those of you not familiar, that's uh, that's Northern California. Uh, he specializes in forensic accounting for businesses. He has lots of letters in front of his name, which means he's a pretty smart guy, which is why we have him on the podcast. He's a CPA. 
He's a certified fraud examiner, and he's also a certified forensic interviewer, which means that by the time we're done with this podcast, he may be interviewing me. So, uh, Brandon, uh, Brandon Waldron, welcome to the Art of Dental Finance and Management. Thanks, Art. Happy to be here. Oh, thanks for thanks for coming on. I'm looking to learn. I, I learn every single time I, I hear this topic. Uh, but before we get going, um, I, I noticed in your bio that uh, you have some interesting hobbies. Uh, you write screenplays and you teach line dancing. So, yeah. uh, you know, if this if this accounting and forensic accounting gig doesn't work out, maybe the the screenplay thing. So tell us about that for a second. Yeah, no, you know, when uh, I was uh, growing up and I was working as an auditor, I would do the long late nights of working on clients and helping them out with uh, wrapping up audits. And in doing so, sometimes I had some difficult times going to sleep. And the best thing I could think of was to write because it's hard to be creative and, you know, be thinking about work at the same time. So start and I plus I love movies. I've seen around 1500 of them. So just wow. just love movies and was like, you know what, I've got some stories that maybe I can make up and tell. And so I've been sitting there uh, writing movie scripts ever since. I've written nine uh, full length um, feature films. Uh, none of wow. them have been purchased or published yet, but uh, obviously I'm hoping one day one of them might make it. What's your favorite movie of all time? Uh, you know, I really enjoy A Few Good Men. Uh, that's definitely one of my top my top favorites there. And it definitely, I think, got me started with uh, investigating uh, that in my childhood hero, Indiana Jones. I always wanted to find buried treasure and, and, and find things like that. But instead, I took it the forensic route and I get to go treasure hunting every day. I, I was going to say, that's what you that's what you do in your forensic uh, uh, in your in your forensic work. Um, and then. Um, uh, how does line dancing work? Are you still getting to do that during the pandemic or have you kind of had to put that on hold? I had unfortunately put that on hold. I was part of a, a very good uh, and fantastic group called the Ohana Group. It's a bunch of friends of mine. And uh, we would go on Friday nights and teach line dancing at a club called the Satterack in Fremont, California. Unfortunately, uh, the Satterack had to close due to the pandemic. Uh, which was really sad. It had been open for over 30 years and it was a, a well-known place in the area for country line dancing. So uh, once this pandemic is over, I plan on finding a different place to hopefully possibly teach line dancing, but it was definitely my favorite thing to do on Friday night. It, it's very relaxing and very enjoyable. Well, if you need someone to show you, show your, uh, your students how not to do it, how not to line dance, I'd be happy to participate. The only time I've ever line danced was on a, on a cruise I've done it several times and um, somebody shot a video of it once and then I stopped line dancing. It got pretty ugly, but we won't go too deep into that. <laughs> hey, so Brandon, why don't you give us a little bit about your story, your journey, your experience, how you got to Eyed Bailey and all that stuff before we get into our topic. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, my first uh, CPA firm I worked for was a, uh, a local CPA firm that specialized in construction contractors and other business uh, entities. Uh, and, and at first, I, I enjoyed working with them, but I wanted to get into a different field of industry. And so I went to Vavernick Trine and Day 
And Vabernick Trinidad Day, I was with for five years, and we specialized in school districts, nonprofits, colleges, and also just general business practices. Um, and uh, really enjoyed that, really enjoyed the people I was working with, and really enjoyed my job. Um, I started to really get involved with my clients and understand their business and understand ways that we could help improve it. But unfortunately, there would always come a point where I would have to stop. You know, when you do audits, um, although audits are great, you know, there does come a point where it's outside the scope of your audit and you can't look into things further, unfortunately, unless it's specifically requested. And so I was like, you know what, I want to help my clients go all the way if we feel like there's something going on that's fishy or, or things like that. And I actually had two clients specifically come up to me and they were like, hey, Brandon, we're very uncomfortable with our vacation uh, accruals right now. You know, we're very nervous about some of the disbursements that we're seeing. Could you look into this? And we were able to discuss it and move forward with that investigation, which then ended up resulting in us finding out that the facilities uh, manager was indeed um, skewing the vacation balances for his employees. Interesting. And so, yeah. And so after that, I was like, you know what? I want to I want to continue doing this. I want to continue helping my clients solve the problems that keep them up at night because to me that really adds value to my job, adds value to my career and adds value to my life. So, um went and got my CFE, my CFI um and started, you know, doing that and I've I've loved it ever since. When I Bailey bought Vabernick Training Day, they were like, "Hey, we we need somebody that's um that's doing fraud and forensics in California and Vabernick Trying Day said, hey, Brandon's your guy. And so I was immediately transferred to full time with Ide Bailey and uh, been been doing it ever since. And um, the rest is history. Well, fantastic. Well, uh, very important topic. Very, very important because everybody, you all work very, very hard. And we want you to keep what you make. Kind of hard to keep it if someone is uh, dipping into the till here. So let, let's start off. I know that there's, Brandon, we, we talk about there, there's two sides of every business. There's the revenue side, and everybody thinks of uh, embezzlement as, you know, uh, the front office person in the dental office is going to take the cash and, and make an adjustment, or they're going to uh, deposit checks or, or credit cards or stuff. But there's another side of this I think we're going to start off with today, which is basically maybe on, you know, some other methods, the expense side. I mean, I've heard things from, you know, uh, using a dental practices Amazon account to make personal purchases, uh, forging owners' signatures on checks, fake employees, um, uh, confidential information, using his blackmail. I mean, so get into some of the stuff that that, that doesn't have to do with actually stealing money, uh, as far as embezzlement goes. And and how does that? Uh, what have you seen there in in uh, in dental offices? Well, I've seen I've seen both, um, but I definitely see lately more of the expense side uh, being the one the the way that people are starting to embezzle money from their uh, dental practices, and unfortunately, it it can grow to an extreme amount. Um, one of the cases that we had, unfortunately, amounted to around four hundred eighty thousand dollars, which was uh, embezzled wow. over the course of um, seven years. And it was, it, you know, most people thought, oh, was she stealing, you know, receipts or things of that sort? Well, it ended up being that this particular person 
um, was uh, making payments to their personal credit cards, was doing unauthorized disbursements to themselves, um, as you said, counterfeiting um, the, the signatures on the checks to make things, you know, go to her and it appeared legitimate. So unfortunately, it, it, it is well known that there is other sides to fraud other than just the revenues and the receipts. And people just naturally think, oh, I need to watch the money coming in, which is extremely true. Um, but also you should take as much caution in looking at the money going out. So let, let's get into that a little more, Brandon. So my 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 dentist is running a practice that's doing a million dollars a year. They use QuickBooks. They write checks. Uh, they pay bills in a couple of ways. There's three ways. They'll do an automatic debit from the bank account. Uh, they'll have a credit card charge, or they'll actually write checks. So, what? Give, give our listeners some tips. What kind of controls should the owner of a dental practice put in to, you know, mitigate? Uh, someone being able to get into the bank account and, and do what you said is pay, what'd you say, $480,000 in personal bills over seven years. That's, I mean, for someone not to know that that's going on for seven years, uh, somebody was not paying attention. So w- what are some tips as far as how we can mitigate and reduce the risk that that would happen to our listeners? Okay. Well, the first thing I want to address, though, is, is, is something that I think is important to say in regards to uh, internal controls for disbursements or any kind of area. Um, if someone's going to do fraud and, and actually commit fraud, no matter what preventative measures you do, they will eventually do it. As my mom says, if, if a criminal really sets their minds to coming coming into your home, they're going to come in. Right. And, you know, I can put all these locks on my door, but they'll climb through my window instead. And so the majority of these preventative measures are not just ways to hopefully stop them from trying to commit fraud, but also in place to hopefully convince them to not even try it. That if they try it, they'll set off alarms and it will they'll get caught extremely quickly. And we call this the perception of detection. This is what we call in uh, in the fraud industry. And it's the most effective internal control uh, to prevent or detect fraud. And so keeping this in mind, some of the things that I would recommend for internal controls to, to do that would be first, um, I, I, I've heard of some dental offices that use a signature stamp. Um, the person, the owner or the um, person who signs the checks is busy, obviously running a dental office and doing what they love doing. And so they'll give the office manager a signature stamp. Highly not recommended. I recommend that, unfortunately, um, the person who's authorized to make the payments actually put their signatures on checks. This is definitely the number one way for people counterfeiting the owner's uh, signature. Second of all, as you mentioned before, Amazon purchases. Unfortunately, Amazon purchases are definitely something that um, has escalated in our fraud cases, not just in the dental practice world, but in other area industries. And so what we definitely recommend for Amazon users is definitely have either the either either have the owner be the only person who has access to the Amazon purchases and therefore they have to make the purchase themselves. Or what we recommend also is, is that specifically have the owner's um, credit card on the Amazon expenses if necessary. So that or you know the business card or the owner's card, because obviously they're going to be more um we'll call it more motivated to look at the specific charges and want to see the support documentation that of why those actual charges went into um, to being purchased. Um, and then I guess the other only thing I could think of is, is in regards to checks. 
having at least five or six people or, you know, two or three if necessary, if you have a small practice, look over the checks before they go out. It shouldn't be a secret why that purchase is being made. If it's a secret, then there's a problem. And, you know, again, one of the things, I mean, I'm like I say, I'm not a forensic accountant at all. But I do know that segregation of duties is 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 one way to mitigate this. And if you can have two or three people looking at things, we're going to get into deposits in great great detail, I'm sure, in this conversation. But uh, I mean, you know, you don't give your uh, front office person uh, the credit card, and then they're an authorized person. Uh, and then, as far as checks go, do you like uh, to see like the the owner should sign all the checks? Don't you think? I do. I do think that the owner should sign all the checks. Unfortunately, due to uh, sometimes, as you said, the segregation of duties, sometimes that it is a difficult thing to do. But I do highly recommend that. And if the person, and if, and if the owner is not available or willing to do that, then at the very least, I would recommend that the uh, bank statements be sent directly to them. And in those bank statements, they always have copies or pictures of any ch- check that has been cashed based on their practice. So at the very least, if they get those bank statements, they can spend five or 10 minutes looking over all those checks. And those pictures of those checks will list the vendors, they'll list the amount given, they'll miss the date of when that check was cashed and when it was written. And they can look into that and at least have a general idea of what's going on with their money. So, you know, one of the things you talked about, and I I think that's great, perception of detection. Now, you know, I, I... I don't teach management, but I talk to doctors about management. What you don't want to do the first day that you hire an employee say, oh, by the way, I have all these controls to make sure you don't steal from me. We don't put it quite that way. But if the employees, like you said, Brandon, if they know that someone is watching everything that's going on, uh, you see that as a deterrent, don't you? I do, but also just some surprises is good every once in a while. And you don't have to specifically say, hey, I'm surprising you to see if you're committing fraud. You could just do some basic stuff that would surprise them and keep them on their toes. So, for example, the owner of the dental practice can um, ask specifically for individuals to go on vacation. Um, They could ask them to cross train you know, ask the office manager to cross train someone so that way then when they do on go on vacation, someone else can take over their duties. You can have surprise cash counts. You can have surprise requests for invoice support. Um, you can uh, force, you know, if you have, a- if the owner has access or has uh, direct um, communication with your IT person, you can have them force a password change. That usually is a, is a nice, easy way to throw a surprise at someone because if they have to change their password, they wonder, well, who's been in my account or who's, who's you know caused me to have to change my password? And so that might get people naturally nervous. And obviously the goal, as you said, is not to say to your staff, hey, I don't trust you. I'm doing this to make sure you're not committing fraud. However, the goal is to at least let them know that you are watching and that you take in that the owners take fraud very seriously. And because of that, they are making sure that there are internal controls in place and that they're, you know, you can't predict when a surprise cash count or a surprise review of the checks or a surprise forced vacation is going to happen. And so therefore you might as well not waste your time or energy trying to commit fraud. And I've, I've heard, I've heard from some of the clients that I have is, some of the employees don't want to take a vacation because then they can't cover their tracks, right? 
Absolutely. This is one of the number one things that we see. Uh, statistics kind of give us a general idea of what a fraudster looks like, um, not just in the dental practice industry, but just in other industries. What we typically see is, is unfortunately, they're the ones that don't want to go on vacation. They're the ones that stay late and come in early. They're the ones that, that are, are overly possessive of their work to the fact of they don't feel comfortable cross-training somebody or they might even be very rude to them in the cross-training and basically say this is a waste of time i'm just going to always be doing this you know back off so when you have a, an employee who doesn't want to take vacations is very possessive of their work very possessive of what they have access to and what they don't and is not willing to share around the office what they're doing then clearly that's usually some big red flags that we think okay maybe there's something fishy going on and if you ask them what's going on say i i tell me about this check and they get all kind of huffy with you like well you know i take care of that you don't have to worry about that why are you asking me this we well that would definitely be a red flag to me, especially being a forensic interviewer. Uh, but uh, one of the things that I would follow it up with is just, you know what, I'm just confused on this and just want some extra information, you know, just want some extra information to understand it. I mean, if you if you have to call someone out on something, yes, if they think that you don't trust them and they're doing something wrong, they will be very pushy. But if you make it like, hey, you know, I, I'm sorry, I don't understand something. I would like some support documentation or some information to help me understand this. No one can tell you you don't understand something. No one could come to me and say, Brandon, you don't need to ask that. You understand what's going on. I, I, I would say, no, I don't understand. So that's why I'm asking. So please, can I receive that information? And right. typically that will help kind of get past that, that at least that first gate that you will face. I'm sure there'll be multiple gates that pop up like, oh, well, I don't have access to the system right now. Or I, uh, you know, I can get back to you on that or things on that sort that you'll have to get through. But definitely the first batch is always simply, you know what, I, I was looking into this and I just don't, I want to understand it a little bit better. Could you please give me the support so I can look at it better? Sure. All right, Brian, let's talk about gross receipts because this is a big part of what we're going to talk about today. So we're going to go to, you know, uh, uh, embezzlement of gross receipts 101 is what we're going to do right here. And it's like, so I have Dr. Wiederman brings you into my dental office. And I say, you know, Brandon, I heard this podcast. You sound like you really know what you're doing. And, you know, I've really not tended the store the way I should have the last 15 years of my practice. And I would like you to put in some basic systems in a dental office. Okay. So I bring you in. You've never met me. Where do you start? If someone's not done any of this, how do we put in good systems um, to, to, to track and make sure that all the money that comes in goes in the bank and not in somebody's pocket? Well, the very first thing that we always do in any type of investigation, whether it be an internal control examination, an ICE audit is what we call it, or a specific fraud forensic examination where we suspect something is wrong and we come in, the first thing we do is we look at the policies and procedures in place at the office. Now, this is a this is a two-way streak because there's always the what they're supposed to be doing versus what's actually happening. And so what we tend to do is we will first request documentation from the owner stating what are they supposed to be doing. 
And then after we do that, we'll have interviews with personnel and we'll also request some support documentation from specific deposits to verify if what they're telling us is happening is actually happening. Now, if we see discrepancies in there, then naturally that would help form what areas we're going to look into as far as the cash receipts go. Now, some other things that I've that I've seen in many instances when cash is involved is, is there a safe? And more importantly, who has access to it? Because if one person has access to the safe and cash goes missing, then clearly that helps us determine, okay, this is one person that we should possibly take a look at. Now, in reality, it doesn't work that way. In reality, you have one safe, and as sad as this is, all four people in the office have access to the safe, <laughs> whether it be to get into cash, you know, to do exchanges, or maybe they have gift cards or something in there that they're holding, or maybe they have some private confidential information they're holding in the safe. Unfortunately, that's the way it happens. And so when we have multiple people in the safe, it does cause a lot of issues as far as money going missing. And especially when it comes to the cash, because unfortunately, as sad as this is, if I was going to commit disbursement fraud, I actually would try to do it most likely in this and with the cash that's in the safe, because that cash has no check behind it, has no right. signature needing. And so therefore, all I have to do is swipe a 10, go make the purchase that I made. And as long as the documentation is out of reach or unable to be obtained, then no one's going to really know whether or not that I stole the cash. That's called skimming. And unfortunately, skimming is skimming is when fraud happens before things are recorded and cash larceny has happened after things are recorded. So um, we've seen a significant amount of cases in skimming, um, but unfortunately it's one of the hardest things to detect because there's no backup. So the one thing that we definitely recommend is, is if you don't have a specific tracking system such as uh, Dentrix or EagleSoft or a specifics or QuickBooks, or something like that, that 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 people are actually using to record the receipts. Then, at the very, very, very least, we would recommend a three-tier receipt book, where you have a white copy, a yellow copy, and a pink copy. And so, then, when you write down that specific amounts were received throughout the day, the pink copy should remain in the book. The yellow copy should go with the cash that's being deposited in the safe and the white copy goes directly to the person who hands you the cash the 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 person that had the dental work completed so that's that would be some minor basic things that we would recommend but certainly the the we would definitely look at the safe procedures we'd look at the procedures regarding how cash is received how it's recorded and then we would naturally do a full examination over the receipts just to do a general just to see okay is there anything missing and once amounts seem to be missing or appear to be missing then that's when things get really fun and interesting for me so let's talk about the basic concept of uh, you know, from the time a patient comes in and they pay and then the money goes in the bank. Cause I know obviously segregation of duties, it would be nice if we had, you know, one person who prepared the billing, one person who got the check, one person who made the bank deposit in a lot of case. And then one, you know, one person who reconciled the bank statement, uh, in a lot of cases in a smaller dental office, that's not possible in the bigger offices it is, but Again, if if I came to you, Brandon, and I said, listen, I got a, a dental office, I got two people at the front desk, um, give me the basics of a of a good internal control system for 
collecting receipts? And then what should the doctor be looking at at the end of every day, every week? So maybe just some of the basics on, you know, uh, employee A does this procedure, employee B does this procedure, something like that. Okay. Uh, What we typically recommend is to stay away from the ARC problem, A-R-C. And A stands for authorization, R stands for recording, and C stands for custodial. And so what we're talking about is there is not, there shouldn't be one person in that office that has two or more of those particular things. So again, first is the authorization. That's the person who's approving uh, the receipt, approving the payment, approving anything, right? So the person who's approving the receipt, approving the deposit, approving the count, approving anything like that should not be the person who's also recording. That needs to be two separate people. And then the person who's doing the recording needs to be separate from the person who has actual possession of the cash. If, if, if I had both of those, let's use that as an example. Let's say that I had possession of a cash and I was I received $20 and I'm also the person that's in charge of recording how much cash was received that day. If I receive $20 and I'm in charge of recording it, I could easily swipe a 10 and just record that $10 came in and you wouldn't know because obviously I have possession of both the recording and the custodian. So the main thing that we always recommend to individuals is you wanna stay away from the ARC problem. So you shouldn't have one person have the possession of the cash, the recording of the cash, and certainly the authorization to make the deposit. So right off the bat, the person who's depositing the cash should be completely different than the person who's actually recording the cash. That's like numero uno, the one thing that you need to do. Um, Second would be the checker. This is the person who's authorizing it, right? You need to have a, a third person in that system that's checking it. Now, the way that this could be is, let's say, for example, I'm the office manager and my job is to record it in the system. So I should have, I shouldn't have possession of the cash. I shouldn't be the one grabbing the 20s and recording it. So therefore, someone else has the records or has the ability to to, to collect the cash. Something, a piece of paper should be sent to me or a notification through uh, uh, Dentrix or Eaglesoft should be sent to me that says, okay, we have this amount of cash that was received today. So that way then I can record it without the person giving me possession of the cash. Then the person who is authorizing the approval for the deposit should have the person who has possession of the cash provide them with account. And it should be a documented count. You should see how much was actually there. The person who's making the deposit should then review, double count that deposit, say, yes, I agree with this person's count. Sign off on the piece of, on the count saying, yes, I have I have agreed that this is the count that should be deposited and this is the amount that I have received. And then the person who takes the deposit over should not have possession of that counting document. That should be given to the person who originally had it. Does that make sense to you? No, it makes, it makes absolute total sense. So let's take a just a quick break here. I want you to give out your contact information. Folks, again, y'all work too hard, way too hard to have somebody who has made themselves a an unannounced partner in your business take your money, and that's either taking your gross receipts or spending your money that you don't know about. So, um, Brandon, um, first, I want you to give out your contact information, how people can get a hold of you, both your phone number and your email address. Um, 
But, you know, let's say I have a dentist out there who hears this and they have some suspicions or they're starting a new practice or a new office. Uh, maybe talk a little bit about what, you know, how you might be able to work with a dental office. So start with your contacts and then talk about how you kind of might be able to work with uh, some of the folks that might be listening here. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to give you guys my cell phone number. My cell phone number is 925-819-2668. And I have it on me every day, pretty much all the time. And then for my email address, it's bwaldren, W-A-L-D-R-E-N, at idbailey.com. So if somebody needs, um, uh, and I think uh, um, a, a forensic examination or something like that, how would that work with the dental office? I mean, you would, would call and do an initial conversation with a doctor or do you have them fill out a questionnaire? How does that work? Well, there's plenty of ways that we start the the um, the process. The first way that they could do it is if they would prefer, they could just submit a request on our website, uh, on our fraud and forensics website. We have a way that they could request us in our services. And obviously, someone will get back to you within 24 hours. If you decide to just call me directly or email me directly, I would schedule a 20 to 30 minute conversation with you. Obviously, this isn't chargeable. It's just simply us talking. And so what would happen is, is they would give us a call. We kind of discuss their suspicions and discuss what evidence that they um, are noticing or anything that they are, are finding that is causing them to have the suspicion. And then we would decide how to proceed. Now, that's if there is a suspicion. Let's say there's someone who doesn't have a suspicion, but just wants to do a check in just a basic, you know, I, I don't have. I don't believe someone's committing fraud or I don't believe I don't have a suspicion that something's being done wrong. But I just want a, a quick check in just to make sure that things are going the way that it should. That's what we call that ICE audit, the internal control examination. And what we do is we come in and we specifically look over the internal controls that are in place in the dental practice. And we verify, are there any loopholes? Is there any way that someone could commit fraud within this particular dental practice? And then we give them a report that specifically summarizes ways that we would recommend them to obviously improve their internal controls. Or if, God forbid, we did this ICE audit and found any evidence of particular suspicions or someone doing fraud, how we would go about proceeding and doing that investigation. Okay, that, that's that's great information, Brandon. And so uh, one thing before I get into what do we do if we find something, uh, I want to ask about kind of the interaction. You'd mentioned Dentrix and Eaglesoft, which as everybody knows, 80 to 90% of all dentists in America use those two programs. And I know that there is a thing called an audit trail and that, uh, you know, uh, so uh, how would one work with their IT person who also knows something about this, not anywhere near what you know, but how would one work in the software? Uh, are there some things you can do proactively to, to, to mitigate this, some prevention, some locks, uh, locking passwords, anything that you recommend for a dental office that might, again, mitigate this? Well, uh, the first thing I would recommend is, unfortunately, common sense. Uh, don't share your password. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, don't, don't go down that road, please. Yeah. Hey, yeah. You know, don't don't share your password. Your password is specifically for you. You should not be sharing passwords amongst the office. And unfortunately, it has happened. It's always kind of awkward when I'm in an interview with a, with a suspect and I ask them, have you shared your password? And, of course, they usually avoid the question, but eventually I get the answer. Yes, I have. And so the first thing I would say is common sense. Please do not share your password. Second thing I would say is, is that it needs to be very well known to the owner who has 
the, the, the top ranking rights to do things within those individual softwares. Typically what we see is the office manager has all the rights to everything and then everyone else has limited access to specific modules. I would highly recommend that the office manager review with their IT person, whoever that may be, um, how much access the office manager really has to modules and reports and things of that sort, and then specifically tailor how much of that is really needed to the office manager. Naturally, for example, I had this with a different software regarding payroll. Um, there was two softwares and one person could basically had to print a report and then that report had to be imported into the payroll software. Well, because this person had access to take the first report out, they would print the payroll report, alter it to fit their better needs and then import it into the payroll system to get paid. So their off their hours would increase dramatically, and obviously that was a type of fraud that they were. I've conducting. seen that too. And so because of that, same thing here with Dentrix and EagleSoft, you should really understand who who could run what report, and is that really necessary? And if it isn't necessary, then it should be removed. Yeah, I want to spend the rest of the time, Brandon, talking about. You know, we talked we, we talked about you know the systems you should have systems for revenue systems to make sure that people don't spend your money through checks or credit cards okay so now the last thing the last piece of this puzzle for this podcast is all right what happens if I find something what happens if I suspect something I mean sometimes a dentist will just flat out find the fraud slam dunk there it is. Uh, a two-year-old could figure it out. Other times, he or she might just be suspecting it. So, uh, let, let's start. If what if I'm suspecting, or I actually, I guess, if or if I actually find a fraud, what should they do? Like I said earlier in the program, you don't go to the person the next day saying, "Now, Susie, you know, I, I I think I caught you stealing money from me. Um, I just wanted to let you know that I know now." That's the last thing you want to do, right? Correct. That's the last thing you want to do. And the main reason being is, is because you, obviously when this happens, owners are naturally upset because unfortunately, as you stated before, um, Art, that you've heard of cases where loved ones were the ones stealing from the practice. Yes. And yep. and a lot of practice dental practices are run by family. Um, my mother is a registered dental assistant. My aunt um, is one also, and she works with a relative in a dental office as well. So firsthand, I know how close and personal a betrayal of fraud can be. And so because of that, you know, the first thing that we always recommend them to do is um, don't don't confront the person. We want the, the suspect needs to be unaware as much and as long as possible. Not only that, but because one of the main mistakes that could happen, and this is even as a fraud examiner, you may have something dead to rights with one thing, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there aren't two or other frauds going on that you're not aware of. So I may be like, yes, they're stealing the cash receipts. It's, it's plain as day. I see it. And so, therefore, I'm going to go talk to this person and say that they've been committing fraud with me with cash receipts. Well, before you know it, if you if you don't if you don't talk to that person directly and you do an investigation, then you might find that in addition to them 
committing fraud with the cash receipts. They're also doing it through the expenses. Maybe they're forging checks that you aren't aware of. Maybe they're doing other types of frauds. And all of that is taking money away from you. So the very first thing we do is say, keep the suspect unaware. Second, we recommend that you reach out to your external bookkeeper, your auditor, your fraud examiner, and you specifically request an examination to be made. Because guess what? If the owner wishes to sue, whether in criminal or in civil court, or terminate that employee, it's highly recommended to have this examination in order to protect them from making mistakes that might lead to issues that would hurt them. For, for example, let's say you quickly rush the process and you terminate this employee. I have seen cases where the term when the terminated employee tries to sue the dental yep. office or other yep. other offices for wrongful termination. And it causes a big, big, huge mess that I'm sure the dental practice doesn't want. So if they call in the investigator or call in the auditors, we come in, we do our investigation. We have evidence backing that, hey, this person really did steal. Here are the facts. We're fact finders. So here are the facts and let the jury decide. And naturally, that's what we love doing because and that's one of the things I love about my job. It's black and white. It's simply did this person you take the money. If so, here is the evidence. And so I, we investigate the evidence. We show them the type of evidence that we found and we go from there. So that, and then lastly, if someone, if you suspect that someone is committing fraud, be aware of the evidence that you have found that makes it that way. So as you said, a two-year-old can feel like someone's committing fraud. If that's the case, you need to save all that paperwork or make copies of all that paperwork or make screenshots or print uh, reports that show that because unfortunately, the minute that the suspect becomes aware, they could go through and delete their whole hard drive or delete certain things that obviously would be very detrimental to the case. Now, the blessing is, is that we at I Bailey have a team of 20 fraud and forensic examiners and we've been continuously resolving cases both now and prior to COVID with digital forensics. We do have the ability to look at hard drives. We do have the ability to obtain some deleted documents um, from not only just the hard drives, but phones, laptops, iPads, things of that sort. So we have the skills to do that, but naturally we want to avoid issues of things being deleted. And so if you really do believe that you have fraud on your hands, you should definitely make copies, screenshots, pictures on your phone, even if necessary, of what you saw. So that way then the fraud examiners could use that to help in their investigation. So in this subject, let me, let me, cause it something popped into my head. Um, and I don't want to forget to ask you about it. So we go ahead. I suspect Dr. Wiederman suspects that there might be something going on. And so I call Brandon, I call Ed Bailey and I say, Hey guys, would you please go in and do a forensic audit or whatever? And you're then going to go into the Dentrix or the Eagle soft and into the practice management software. My concern is, and, and how do we mitigate this is many, many times in a dental office, I will tell you, I sell dental practices too, Brandon. And we asked the dentist before we put the practice up for sale. We say to them, can you print me management reports? And I will tell you one third to one half of the time, they say, I don't even know what the password is to get into my computer. So it's always the people in the front desk. We can't tell the people at the front desk we're selling because that would blow up the sale. But the point is, is that if you go in there and you start looking around and you look and, and, and someone who's real familiar with that computer can see afterwards that you did that. Could they then be tipped off if you did this forensic audit? 
could they be tipped off that you now that the the doctor is suspecting something and now they got to you know, burn the evidence, get out of town, go to the Maldives or something. How, how do you prevent them when you go and do your forensic audit of ever knowing that you were ever into the computer system? Can you do that? Yeah, we can do that. We can do that. Uh, typically what ends up happening, there are ways that we would instruct the dentist office, the dental office to help us in doing so. And I can't give you all the secrets over this no, podcast. No, 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 so, no, no. Yeah, but, I, but, but let's just say there are ways that we are doable. able- it's do it's very 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 doable and we are able to do it without someone knowing that we got access to their hard drive because essentially what one of the things that we would do is just make a copy that's essentially what we're doing so there are ways for us to get access to that hard drive make the copy and then get out of there and they not know that we made the copy and so th- there there are ways for us to get information that we need specific to the type of investigation that we're going for okay so, and I've I've actually been involved, not as a forensic accountant, but as an expert witness in a couple of embezzlement cases years and years ago. And I know, you know, you're dealing with attorneys and litigators and all this stuff. So let's say you go in there, okay, and you find it. Uh, a lot of times people that are, my experience, Brandon, is that people that are embezzlers are uh, they're not wealthy people. If they were wealthy, well, they wouldn't have to embezzle. These are people that are in debt. They have gambling debts. They have alcohol problems. They have all kinds of problems. And, you know, so how do we, I mean, is there any way for us to get this money back if you discover a fraud? How does that How does that process work? If, if you find it, the doctor is going to say, that's great. I can pay you lots of great fees to find it, but how do I get my money back? Well, civil litigation is always an option for recovery of funds that are missing, um, and, it, and it's definitely a path that most individuals don't want to take because they're afraid of how much cost the civil, you know, the civil litigation will be to them uh, for lawyer fees and such, or God forbid, uh, something that I've seen occurring in multiple fraud cases that the amount that was stolen doesn't necessarily equate to have it be worth a civil litigation. For example, I've seen where an individual takes just $5,000 and the amount to go through the civil litigation will be 10 to $20,000. So of course you're not going to, you're, you're not going to do that. So some of the other things that we recommend is, um, insurance. Um, there's definitely, um, some coverage that, uh, insurance companies will offer. There's a range of different things that can be done based on the amount of money that was stolen, how much money was stolen, and more importantly, who you're working with. As sad as it is, there are a lot of fraud cases in a dental office, because again, it could be a family member, it could be a close friend, where things aren't prosecuted and things are not taken care of. And if they're not taken care of properly, um, not only will it ruin your relationship with that person, but more importantly, it could also cause some issues with other individuals thinking I can commit fraud in this place and nothing's going to happen. So right. you do need to do exactly ramifications. So you do need to do something. It's just a matter of to how much extent was stolen and also what you're willing to do at that point in time. Yeah. And, and the thing is, is if this is a person who has been deeply in debt and, and, and maybe, maybe before I go that route, um, do you sometimes recommend that people who have been embezzled that they hire white collar um, investigators to see what kind of assets people have? And I know you're not a licensed attorney, but is that done sometimes? Because you, know, you could have the best iron and clad, open and shut 
fraud, you know, theft, embezzlement case in the world. But I think there's a term in this life that says you can't get blood out of a turnip. So do you sometimes say to the client, listen, do we need to investigate this person? And and, and how is that uh, done, if it's done at all? Well, there are some small things that we can do, but the stuff that you're primarily talking about would be directly useful with the attorney. Right. Uh, you know, the attorney would be the person that would be able to subpoena the records that would show us if there is any hidden assets. Now, we are trained in determining and detecting if there are hidden assets in someone's accounts and looking at their bank records and stuff. So we can do that if the information is obtained. But naturally, that would be up to the lawyer to get us that information. So I'm thinking that the team here, Brandon, you're probably the first person that the doctor should call uh, if they suspect or found something. Then I think we maybe need two more two more team members. We need the litigation attorney who might file either criminal or civil uh, suit against the uh, alleged perpetrator. I, I watched. I used to watch Law and Order all the time, so I know all the terms. Alleged perpetrator. That and and maybe. We also probably need to call a an HR labor attorney to make sure that whatever we do and however we act for this employee, that we don't get sued, like you said earlier, for labor violations. That that's pretty much our team: is you, the forensic accountant, the um, the litigating attorney, and then the potentially an HR attorney if necessary. I would say that's correct, with one caveat. Okay. We also want the owner involved. Obviously, well, obviously the owner, yeah, the owner yeah, is right. part of that team as well, because obviously he's going to be the one, he or she is the one that we're talking to directly, and we're specifically saying, hey, this is, you know, this is what we're finding, this is what we're seeing, how would you like to go, you know, how would you like to proceed? Definitely lawyers are something that we would definitely recommend. And if they don't know any, naturally, due to our, our work, we do have other we do have specific contacts that we could refer them to in order to help them with with those type of issues. Okay, last question for you today, because unfortunately we're about out of time here. All right. How has COVID affected all of your work and what's happening in dental offices? What what are you seeing in, in I guess in businesses in general? Are you seeing more of this, less of this uh, because of the pandemic? It's a great question. And what's funny is, is I've actually gotten this question quite a bit, not just with clients, but also just in regards to uh, networking or marketing uh, meetings that I've had. And simply, this is what I've been this is what I've been telling them. My answer is, is that fraud was happening before COVID. And it's possibly being done during COVID. But the reason that we're seeing an increase in cases during COVID is because individuals have the time now to look over their records. Naturally, during the shutdown, there was a big chunk of time there where individuals weren't working. Or if they were, they were doing it from home or things of that sort. So now they have the time to look over their records and take, you know, look over years and years worth of, of, of records and time. And they're like, wow, what is this? Oh, this must be a problem. And then, of course, they call us. So as we've stated before, I, I would say that that I wouldn't say that there has been a dramatic increase in fraud due to COVID. But I would certainly say there's been an increase in fraud cases coming forward because of the fact that individuals have the time to look over their records and information. Well, I will tell you, you are a wealth of information, Brandon. I really appreciate your time today, uh, folks. Is really important. We want you to keep what you make. Uh, we don't want you to have a, 
a new partner that's uh, doesn't have a partnership agreement with you. So, um, Brandon, if if any of our listeners, uh, whether they're an Ide Bailey client or not, uh, or an ADCPA client or not, if they want to ask you a question, give you a call, if you suspect something, um, what would be again the best way to get a hold of you, uh, both you know number and your uh, email address? Uh, I would say again, you can call me at my cell nine two five eight one nine two six six eight. You can send me an email at bwaldren, W-A-L-D-R-E-N, at idbailey.com. You can go to our website and submit a, you know, submit a request for someone to reach out to you. I would reach out to you within the first 24 hours of you putting in that submission. Or you guys could reach out to me in LinkedIn as well and just you know request to talk to me there. So there's plenty of ways to get a hold of me. And I certainly want to be here and help anyone who has issues. As I said before, I love my job. I love protecting clients. I love helping them uh, not have any uh, individuals taking advantage of them. Because unfortunately, as bad as everything is getting out there in the world, not just with COVID, but with other things going on, we certainly wouldn't want to add the stress of someone uh, taking advantage of you as well. So I'm definitely enjoy helping all of my clients and I'm here to help in any way I can. And the last question is, so do you offer a free line dancing class with every forensic audit? Is that how that works? Here's what I would say. If they wanted wanted one, I certainly would have no problem teaching them one. I have some basic ones that would be very easy to teach over over a video chat in the first 10 minutes, but (laughs) certainly not something that I would propose to all clients. Okay, sounds good. Listen, Brandon, hang on as I as I kind of wrap up the show and and and, and take it to the end. But uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you again for the honor and privilege of your time. Uh, I am very hopeful that this information um, is helpful to you. We've got lots of great topics uh, coming up. I've got some special guests coming up. Again, not gonna not gonna spoil it. I did get to interview the executive director of the American Dental Association. I've got some other. Uh, what I think you're going to think are really cool people coming up on the podcast the next couple of months. Um, if you want to get a hold of me in my office in Tustin, I'm at 657-279-3243. That's directly goes right to my computer. And I actually now know how the Skype works and I press the right button and it comes right through to my headphones. It works out really well. Uh, or you can email me at a Wiederman. That's W I E D E R M A N. Don't spell it E I. Uh, the state of New York spelled it E-I on my birth certificate. They had to fix it down the road, but it's A. Wiederman, W-I-E-D-E-R-M-A-N at idbailey.com. Same, uh, we use it, idbailey. We use our first initial last name at idbailey, and that's E-I-D-E-B-A-I-L-L-Y. Be sure to um, go to our website for our partner, Decisions in Dentistry magazine, www.decisionsindentistry.com. Be sure to check out the website of our Academy of Dental CPAs, 24 CPA firms that represent over 10,000 dentists, www.adcpa.org, and do sign up for our webinar series. The great thing about, uh, you know, there's many, many downsides of this pandemic, as we all know, but one of the great things about it is that now everything is virtual and, you know, we don't have to limit the people. If someone in Pennsylvania wants to listen to the webinar, and it's good information. They All they got to do is click on their computer. So go to www.idbailey.com forward slash dental series to sign up. Um, we have we have three of them. We have on the third 
A second second Wednesday of every month is going to be the business of dentistry, 6 to 8 p.m. California time. And it will also be recorded and on our iBailey website, all of these. Uh, we have a four-part transition series. So if you are thinking about buying or selling a dental practice anywhere in the United States, uh, we've got an attorney. We've got me talking about valuation and taxes and what people want. We have a great dental management consultant. Uh, who's going to be talking about that. That first one is January the 20th. Again, it'll be on uh, on tape so you can see it. Uh, and then a bank to talk about how the lending works. And then we have a new dentist series in February and March. Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, thank you again for, uh, like I said, the honor and privilege of your time and for listening to my podcast. Please tell all your friends about it. Uh, this is good information. It's helpful information. And again, my my legacy is to help the dental profession to be more successful, be more profitable, and and for you guys to to enjoy yourselves. Now, nobody's enjoyed themselves a whole heck of a lot the last nine to ten months, but uh, we're hoping the twenty twenty one will change all of that. And um, uh, I'm very optimistic, and I will go back again that I say at the end of every single episode of the Art of Dental Finance and Management, my five word. Uh, rallying cry is failure is not an option. If you're not working on your business, if you're not doing things to make your systems better, to make sure that your internal control systems are better. And by the way, I didn't even mention this. Uh, Brandon and his team are going to do one of those 12 uh, business of dentistry series. We've got uh, uh, we've got our cybersecurity group and Brandon's group is going to do it in, in March and April. So make sure that you stay tuned for that. So this was kind of a a, a, a teaser. Uh, as my Peloton teacher in England, I, I, I they have uh, people in New York and people in England. So uh, um, the, the the teacher in England says, it's, it's just a teaser. Well, this is a teaser for you. Uh, March and April, we're going to have uh, those groups talking about cybersecurity and uh, internal controls. So. With that said, uh, that is about it for the Art of Dental Finance and Management with Art Wiederman CPA. Again, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Art of Dental Finance and Management podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. The Art of Dental Finance and Management podcast is produced by Ide Bailey in partnership with Art Wiederman, CPA, Decisions in Dentistry Magazine, and the Academy of Dental CPAs. For audience questions and feedback, email Art Wiederman, awiederman at idebailey.com. That's A-W-I-E-D-E-R-M-A-N at E-I-D-E-B-A-I-L-L-Y.com. Or you may call Art at 657-279-3243.